Let's go ahead and open our Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the title of the message, how appropriate it is with the song that was just sang. This morning I would like to preach on the topic of extravagant mercy. His mercy is no doubt extravagant. His mercy endureth forever. His mercy goes on and on and on and you cannot exhaust it. And just when you think you are so far from the Lord or your children are so far from the Lord or your friends are so far from the Lord, mercy comes running towards them to snatch them out of those places of despair and to place them back in communion with God. Hold the power. Of God's merciful grace. And we see that no clearer than in Ephesians chapter number 2. Ephesians chapter number 2 is the same passage uh, that we read. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. And we see that the gift of God, this beautiful thing called grace, is purchased first by His mercy. Let's stand to our feet out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. As we gaze into the truth of Ephesians chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 1. Who is the audience? Well, it's established in the first two words. And you. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, And were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. I love this. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word. Lord, I ask that you would empty me of myself and fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit, not for my glory, Lord, but for your great name's sake. For the benefit and the edification of your people. For the salvation of those who may be here this morning and so lost but unaware of it. And Father, I pray that you would put your mercy and grace on full display this morning. And that you would convict our hearts in light of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. We often miss the extravagant nature of God's mercy. 
I hesitated even to use that word extravagant because when we use it in our vernacular, the word extravagant can often be a depiction of someone's flippant use of their riches. Not so long ago, I was preaching a revival service in Delray Beach, Florida, just north of Fort Lauderdale in in Miami, a place full of extravagance. Towers that reach toward the heavens there on the most beautiful beaches in this country. And and you see yachts and you see extravagant cars and extravagant lifestyles, extravagant dresses and extravagant entertainment. We, for entertainment's sake, as some of you know, like to drive through extravagant neighborhoods and look at extravagant houses Extravagant people and extravagant haircuts. Yes, a haircut can be extravagant. (laughs) And behind our use of the word extravagant is vanity behind our use of it. Because we see that even in the most lavish expenditures in luxurious living is a heart that's going to spend somewhere forever. And we know that not one penny of it can change that reality. Oh, it's easy to be critical of extravagance. Well, if I had that much money, I wouldn't waste it on that. Well, maybe you would and maybe you wouldn't. And for those reasons, I hesitated to use the word extravagant in the title of this message. But when my heart was brought captive to what I read in verse number four, and as I thought about the frivolous expenditure from God for us, I thought, what greater word, what more precise word could an onlooker, a fallen angel, look at our miserable existence? And what word would they use to describe the mercy of God? Oh, I believe that every imp of hell would describe mercy that's given to us as an extravagant behavior by an act of God. And I cannot get around the fact that God's use of mercy comes from an outpouring of his riches as we see declared in the word of God. For we see in verse number four, the Bible says, but God who is rich in mercy And we must be reminded that God had enough mercy to go around. He had mercy to burn and mercy to spend on such a worm as I, as the hymn writer likes to say it. One of the reasons that we often miss the the extravagance of God's mercy is because we think more highly of ourselves. And doesn't Ephesians chapter 2 bring us down a notch? The Bible tells us in verse number 1 that you hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. It says in verse number two that where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The Bible says at the end of verse number three that we, that we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And here we can look into the mirror of our own self-indulgent opinions of our nature and we can give ourselves the benefit of the doubt 
And we could say, oh no, we were never against God. Friends, let me tell you this morning. That there is a great spiritual battle going on. Behind the scenes of this physical world lies legions of demons and angels alike. Lies the powers of God and all of his majesty. And the power that has been delegated to him by Satan. And there is a great warfare going on. And I want you to be well aware of this fact or else you will miss the extravagant nature of God's mercy altogether. That there are no impartial parties in this warfare. No one gets to play the role of Switzerland in this battle. For you are either on God's side entirely or you are on Satan's side entirely. And there may be some Benedict Arnolds in the bunch who are trying to play one side against the other. But before we were redeemed, we were not a neutral party. But we were condemned, condemned not as a neutral party within this spiritual conflict, but rather as servants to the adversary of God and his people. That's what the close of verse number three says, that we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Before we were redeemed, the power that worked in, it, in us is described in verse number two as being the prince of the power of, of the air, that is Satan himself. Before we were redeemed, we are described in this way in verse number two, that we were the, that the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, that that same spirit was now working in us. And when the Bible says, for all have sinned, we need to realize that that sin that we were a party to made us a soldier in the armies of evil. There's no impartial party in this great sport, spiritual warfare that's taking place behind the scenes of this physical world but it's taking place in the heart of every man and woman and child here in this sanctuary and every man, woman, and child that is inhabiting the city of Knoxville. I don't know what your experience in warfare was, but in my experience, the goal was to absolutely decimate the enemy with as much power and force and violence as you could possibly muster. However, I glance to verse number four and I notice that there is something different about our God. The Christian religion is about the only faith on the planet that I know of whose goal is not to destroy the enemies of its warfare, but instead, but to win them. For the Bible says in verse number four, but God, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy. And I would like to examine three areas of God's extravagant mercy. The first one is this, that I want us to take a look at the riches of his mercy. The riches of his mercy are, are driven by the distinction of God's nature. In other words, the God that we serve is higher and more lofty than any logic that we can apply to this spiritual battle, battle that is played out for God's desire is that no one should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But God, who is rich in mercy... I love the fact that God's nature is so different than our nature. And in so, he is so distinguishable from us. I love those but God moments in scripture. 
Where it seems like everything is going one way. And then when God steps in, something entirely unexpected happens. I love that in the life of Joseph. How in Joseph's life, it was Eve, his brothers thought evil against him and threw him into the pit. And he found himself in Potiphar's house and there was evil done to him there. And, and now in prison and, and there was evil done to him there. And then he arose to power there in Egypt. And when gathered there with his brothers, uh, they were so concerned about his response to them. And in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, we find this phrase. As Joseph is speaking to his brothers, he says, but as As for you, ye thought evil against me. And then he says this, but God meant it unto good. And God takes something inherently wicked and turns it around for his goodness. Oh, even the death of Christ. In a moment when it seemed like evil was triumphing and evil had reached its pinnacle there on top of this mountain called Calvary as the very Son of God was dying Oh, sure, there were parades of evil going on, thinking that they had triumphed over the Son of God. But after the first day, the party continued. And after the second day, the party continued. But on the third day, there was a, a, a strong, abrupt end to the, to the celebration of wicked. For in Acts chapter 13, verse number 30, the Bible says, But God raised him from the dead. You see, that's the nature of God. To step in and do something completely contrary to what everybody else expected. And oh, that is an extravagance concerning the riches of His mercy. For here we are, dead in our trespasses and sins, as the Bible has told us. Here we are, unrighteous before Him, but because of the riches of His mercy, it is His desire to save us from our sin and to forgive every unrighteous deed. So many have asked me, Pastor Jared, can God save a sinner like me? Yes, he can. So, but, you, but you don't understand how bad I've been. Maybe I don't. Maybe you're here this morning and you have been running so far from God and running so fast towards evil. You've been injecting things into your body to run from God. You have been indulging in sinful behavior. You have been running from God, indulging in the world, and you have been baptized by sin and iniquity. And now you look back to God and all you see is wrath. And He is, by the way, a God of wrath and of judgment. The Bible does tell us, be sure your sin will find you out. No doubt whatsoever that we must give an account for everything done in our bodies. And as you are sitting there here this morning, just as sure as you sit before me, one day you will kneel before him and he will know every word and every deed and every action. He will be able to recount every lie and every blasphemous thought or act of lust. He will know every ounce of jealousy, pride, and bitterness that has ever dwelled in your heart. And even as you squirm in your seat, 
feet now, knowing that you cannot hide from a holy God, that his eyes are going to and fro about all the children of men, that he knows your heart, he knows your mind, and you cannot escape the judgment that's coming. As sure as you know that, know this as well. But God is rich in mercy. And where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And if you're here thinking that God cannot forgive me for my sins, for I have sinned too much, I have ran too far, I remind you of the prodigal that returned, hoping just to feast in the trough of the Father. Listen, God has not called you to feast in His trough. He's called you to dine at His table. And why is it that you're able to be invited to scoot your chair up to the most holy table of God and to feast from His heavenly manna? I'll tell you why. Because of His extravagant mercy. He is willing to expend His mercy on even the furthest soul, on even the wickedest man or woman, on the one who has defiled himself, on the one who has ran from God. And I'll tell you why He's willing to do this. Because His mercy is motivated by His love. It says it right here in the text of Scripture. The Bible says in verse number 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, notice this, for His great love wherewith He loved us. We notice that at the close of verse number 4, that word love splashes onto the pages of our Bible and declares itself as the motivation for His mercy. No wonder the Bible says that His mercy endureth forever. It's because the Bible also says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Perhaps you've been saved and for many years you have been distanced from your heavenly Father and you're wondering if He still loves you and the answer is yes. For the Apostle Paul declared in Romans chapter 8 that he was persuaded. He was convinced entirely that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why does God have such mercy towards us? Because the extravagant mercy is driven by His extravagant love. And as the angels that have fallen, as the demons in hell, may look at His mercy towards us and criticize it as extravagance, I want you to know this morning that it's not, it's not empty extravagance but instead it's the measure by which he loves you oh and when I see the measure the measure is mercy I'm reminded that he does not just desire for that mercy to be spent upon me but for all for all. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says that, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That all should come to repentance. Can I tell you just a little bit about the, the Greek word that underlines that, that word willing in Second Peter 3 9? I came across this in in, in study just a couple weeks ago and I found it amazing to me. Is that word willing 
has really two primary definitions. The first one being of, of desire with plans to do something about that desire. The definition, secondly, is a willingness with plans already put into motion to do something about that desire. In other words, if I could say it this way, that God doesn't just have a love and a desire to extend mercy to you, but he's got plans to extend that very mercy. Plans that by the nature of the cross have already been put into place. He's already paid the price for your mercy. He's already paid the price for your sin. And if you're looking at that cross and saying, but was that price sufficient? The answer is yes. For the blood that flowed through his veins was infinitely sufficient to atone for your sins, to cleanse your sins. For there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And every sinner, every sinner that's put beneath that flow will be cleansed of all their guilty stains. Oh, when I see the glory of God and I notice he is so merciful and gracious, I see the extravagance of his mercy and realize that it's motivated by his love. He is rich in mercy. The next thing that I notice about his extravagant mercy is not just the riches of it, but I notice that it does something with the relationship of his members. The relationship of his members. I want you to notice those first person personal pronouns in verse number five of the next verse. The Bible says, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us <laughs> together with Christ, by grace you are saved. I noticed the continuation of this thought in verse number six, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I, I love how he has continued that, even in verse number seven, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus, through Christ Jesus. And I notice that there is a relationship that his mercy has purchased for his members. I see we and us, and he died for me, but he also died for the sins of the whole world. And what does he desire to do? He wants to live with us. To live with us. That's what it says in verse number six. And he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Oh, I love how it says here in this passage that he has quickened us in verse number one and you hath he quickened all of those words, whether it is quickened or, or whether it's raised us up. It's an idea that he wants us to live together with him, that we would be made alive once again. Yes, the Bible tells us in John chapter 3 that he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. And so easy we feel that condemnation. Like a kid caught with our hand in the candy jar. And we know that that judgment is upon us. And, and so many people, they feel so uncomfortable stepping into a church 
because of that feeling. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're, you're saying, well, what is that feeling? This is what it is. That's what the Bible calls conviction. And it comes by the Holy Spirit of God. It's an uncomfortable feeling, conviction is. Conviction, it's a similar feeling when, uh, when you've been, been caught for some wrongdoing. Perhaps you remember when you were a child and your mother gave you a certain set of instructions to go clean your room or to be nice to your siblings and they catch you red-handed and all of a sudden you feel uh, that uncomfortable spirit and you'd like to just escape. But with God, there is no escaping. But there is forgiveness. And here is the wonderful thing about forgiveness is that forgiveness from God heals that distance between you and God. It is not God's desire to cast you out, but instead His desire is to call you in. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, God wants you to come to Him so bad that He brought you into church this morning and laid this message upon my heart that you might understand that He wants to have a relationship with you as one of His members, as one of His followers, as one of his children and he doesn't want you to be a stepchild for there's no stepchildren in the family of God for they are all born of his spirit and placed in his home and given a place a heavenly place in Christ Jesus and he wants to quicken you together and give you a life not just a temporary life but an eternal life with him he just what he does not just want to give you life but he wants to give you life more abundantly not a life running not a life high not a life escaping, not a life fearing, not a life wondering, but a life that knows, that knows that you've been forgiven and that you have received the extravagance of God's mercy in your life. I love when I, I look through this, I see that this is God's desire for all of us but I'm, my attention is drawn by, by where he wants us to be. Notice in verse number six, he says, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together Amen. in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If I go back to verse number 5, I notice it says it this way, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together. And, and, and sometimes when we read that word together, we're just thinking about together with one another. And there is some truth to that. I believe the Lord is pleased when His people come together under the unity of the mercy that he's extended to us as we then extend mercy to one another and have, as I preached last week, that glorious fellowship in the gospel. But he's not just called us to be together. He's called us to be together with Christ. Even when we were dead in sins, verse number 5, hath quickened us together with Christ. With Christ. 
with Christ. It's a relationship of his members that he wants to be with us and us with him, that we can come boldly before the throne. And why can we do that? Not because we're good, not because we're perfect, not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ that he has given to us. And how, how did we receive it? By his mercy, by his grace, by his overall forgiveness of all of our sins because his blood was sufficient that we might come nigh unto him. Amen. Oh. And here's the amazing thing. That's what he intends right now. Oh, so much of the Christian life is focused on that which is to come. And don't worry, that's my next point. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But he has an experience for us in Christ together with him right now. You don't have to feel distanced from God. You don't have to feel so far away as if God is, is, is stricken and, and there's some gulf, some gap between you and him. But instead, we can be together in Christ and with Christ right now. And all the things that you thought were keeping you from him can be removed by his mercy. I see the riches of his mercy. I see the relationship of his members. But I look towards this heavenly location at the close of verse number six. It says that he had made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And you see, that's where we are now. But it has echoes of those things to come. And you talk about extravagant mercy. Consider the reality of his mansion. The reality of his mansion. This is our destination. Joel Osteen's got this, this book, Your Best Life Now. <laughs> I really hope not. <laughs> I really hope not. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love my life, but sometimes it's miserable. Sometimes it stinks. Especially after the chili cook-off last night. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. I, I told myself, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. And then there it came. This life is so imperfect, so tarnished, so blemished, so hurtful, so unkind. This life can be so lonely, even when we are declared to be in Christ. But there is coming a day where all of those heartaches... And all of those sorrows are gone. Not just temporarily gone. Not just put a band-aid on it, gone. Not gone in such a way where a scar will exist. But I'm talking about new beginnings gone. Where all things, not some things, not partially, but all things are made new. And we don't live in the light of that glory like we should, church family. 
We have been given a heavenly place in Christ Jesus. Why do you think the disciples were in such shock when Jesus said that he was going to a place because they thought that he was going to be torn from them? Oh no, quite the opposite. For when he went, another comforter came that they would be indwelled, that the Spirit of Christ, that the Spirit of God would indwell them in nature more intimately than ever before. And we still reap the benefit of that Holy Spirit presence and indwelling in our life. Oh, but where is Christ? Oh, he's seated on the right hand of the Father. But what is he doing? Well, he tells the disciples this in John 14. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He stopped listening to everybody else. Start listening to Jesus. And what did he say? Oh, there is a heaven to gain. And in that heaven, there are heavenly mansions. And and he told us, and he says, if I go, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And I, in the despair of this world, lift up my eyes from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord. And I every now and then get a little glimpse into that heavenly kingdom, No, I'm not talking about some super spiritual, mystical experience where God catches me away. He just reminds me in his word and I've got enough sense to bend the ear of my heart close to his heart and see that street paved with gold as it leads up to the throne room of his presence. As I look around and I see the mansions that have been prepared for us already waiting, already prepared. It's just that trumpet sound that we're listening to that we would be caught up together with them in the air. You see, that is our destination. The place where the tree of life still blooms and the river of life still flows. Oh, but our direction is up. Our direction is up. It's not down. It's not in despair. For the Bible tells us in verse number six that he hath raised us up together. Up where? Away from sinfulness. Away from struggles, away from pain, away from tears, away from death, away from cancer, away from all of those things. And that is the reality. The reality of His mercy. The reality of it. Extravagant mercy. Not just to forgive us, but as we look at the richness of His mercy, we see the relationship that He longs to have with you, with me. We see the reality of what He is willing to prepare and will prepare for all who come to Him in faith believing. And I would say there's two groups of people listening to me here this morning. There's the group which perhaps makes many of you. And we've forgotten how extravagant His mercy is. 
And we have valued things greater than God and prioritized things above the Lord. We have gotten our eyes off the mission that he has given us because we have forgotten how merciful he's been to us. But then maybe there's another group. And you're under the sound of my voice. And if you would be honest with me this morning... You're not even 100% sure that you're ever going to step into that place called glory. You're not 100% sure that you're ever going to put your foot on what the Bible describes as the new Jerusalem heaven coming down, a place with streets of gold. And yet the Bible does say, for these things have I written unto you. Remember the words of Jesus, if it were not so, I would have told you. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. You don't have to guess or wonder or fear. You can know. And these are not Pastor Jared's words. These are the words of God. I'd say there's two types of people and the second type still doesn't know. But you can. So Pastor Jerry, that sounds ridiculous. It's extravagant, isn't it? And that's the way his mercy is. 